Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. Hard to believe we're already into the middle of another week. And what do you know, we are now at the final climax, or ending point, to Tales from a Revolution, Bacon's Rebellion and the Transformation of Early America by James D. Rice. I must say, it has been a very, very um, unique uh, book topic to discuss, to say the least. And I'm sure many of you are wondering, uh, Kirk, out of all the uh, book topics you've done, which would you say has been the most challenging one? I would actually have to say that it's been this one. Yes, I uh, knew things about Bacon's Rebellion. I probably learned more about the Rebellion, not only in terms of the event itself through having read this book, but also within the last couple of years um, in visiting uh, Jamestown uh, prior to the start of the pandemic, where um, they had a section um, on Bacon, including a, a 3D movie of the um, of the Rebellion itself. So... All of that um, inspired me to probably want to learn more about this uh, rebellion. Too often, uh, the history books from years past um, often told us that whenever a rebellion or a rebellious incident took place, it was just an isolated matter that happened over a one-day span, and it was uh, quashed very quickly, and everybody went back to uh, living a normal life. More often than not... Uh, as much as we would like to believe that rebellions, infamous rebellions that have occurred, uh, were the result of just a, a one-day isolated incident, that is not the case. Uh, we often have to be reminded that even in the aftermath of a rebellion, it doesn't mean that the flames are completely extinguished. And I do believe it's fair to say, based upon what we have learned in this um, book topic series, that... Um, even though Nathaniel Bacon didn't live much longer after his uprising had in fact taken place that resulted in the burning of Jamestown, we uh, must be reminded that uh, he had he definitely had men uh, below him who were part of his inner circle who were willing to take to uh, carry on his uh, mission and and success they did have for uh, an extended period of time not for say 10 years but they did have enough extended period of time to where they made their presence known uh, luckily before uh, William Berkeley even as unfortunate as it was that you know for William Berkeley uh, the governor to have to be sent back to uh, England in the midst of a recall at least we can say that before he was sent back that he was able to um, strike back he and his um loyalist circle um they were able to um take back jamestown and be able to uh, restore some order but sadly it just wasn't enough to be able to um recapture what had um transpired in terms of prosperity prior to 1674 the year of bacon's arrival so what we're going to be talking about in this uh, final uh, podcast segment to Tales from a Revolution, what we're going to be learning about is, for number one, we'll be learning about uh, what other uh, people wrote about Bacon's Rebellion in the years after the Rebellion. So in other words, there are accounts of Bacon's Rebellion based upon other people's um, published work findings. 
So it will be interesting to get uh, a perspective that, for all we know, could date back to the middle part of the 20th century. Uh, we might even possibly be looking at a historical uh, perspective of the rebellion, say a decade, say a quarter of a century after it happened. So that's what I find uh, very uh, unique in terms of talking about. Another thing that we will discuss is uh, the implications and the greater fallout behind this rebellion and why why it took a little bit longer to get past the um, incident itself because it Bacon's rebellion did have a profound impact on the uh, Virginia colony not just for the time in which it happened but it had a profound impact um, in the years after um, the incident itself had occurred so Let's get our seatbelts fastened and let's get ready to um, be prepared for, uh, for the last hurrah to Tales from a Revolution. So here's our leadoff question. When did the first uh, published writings or written accounts surface regarding Bacon's Rebellion? Let me, let me, all, let me ask you this. Uh, is it fair to say that there were people who lived a quarter of a century after Bacon's Rebellion? whom were able to uh, recall what had transpired back in 1676? Yes. So the first person whom wrote about Bacon's rebellion was none other than Robert Beverly. His name has come up uh, quite a bit. He was one of, um, he was one of the uh, elite uh, members of uh, Governor Berkeley's inner circle whom were uh, steadfast loyalists. Robert Beverly, uh, luckily, did not um, fall into uh, Nathaniel Bacon's trap of being forced to take an allegiance against his own will to be on the side of Bacon and his uh, rebels. So Robert Beverly, uh, we learned, um, was a um, commander in the uh, military or the uh, on the side of uh, Governor Berkeley and helped um, lead um, missions that helped uh, thwart um, that helped basically help thwart uh, further violence. So Robert Beverly was the first um, individual to uh, publish uh, a written account or publish uh, writings pertaining to Bacon's Rebellion, and his work uh, came about in 1704, just a little over a quarter of a century after the infamous incident had taken place. What's even more interesting is that when this uh, piece of work was published by Beverly, none of our forefathers were, had, were even born. As a matter of fact, the first of, of America's prominent forefathers, Benjamin Franklin, would be born two years later in 1706. So Robert Beverly provided full descriptions behind, rebe behind uh, Bacon's uh, rebellion based upon its origins including the outlines, uh, the courses of direction that uh, Bacon and his rebel uh, followers uh, took. This uh, book that um, Robert Beverly uh, wrote was titled History and Present State of Virginia. So uh, to me, that sounds like a pretty uh, important title, History and Present State of Virginia. To me, it almost sounds like a precursor of uh, Thomas Jefferson's uh, famous uh, book that he wrote called uh, Notes on the State of Virginia. So yes, Robert B Beverly was a Berkeley loyalist throughout the entire conflict. 
he became one of Virginia's earliest historians. To me, I find that very um, noteworthy and significant uh, to mention, considering that he went out of his way to um, to do a first in uh, writing um, his own recollections about uh, Bacon's rebellion just a little over a quarter of a century. Did many Americans for years on end come to believe that Bacon's rebellion of 1676 had served as an eventual precursor to what would unfold a hundred years later in 1776. Yes. Yes, for a long time, folks, many Americans were convinced that Bacon's rebellion in 1676 was, in fact, a precursor that would, un being an event that would, um, being the beginner's event of something very radical that involved, um, a declaration or grievances against uh, an institution above. It uh, basically was an event that sought to remove one government and replace it with another. But as we as we're going to be learning in the epilogue here, yes, Nathaniel Bacon was entitled to his opinions. However, I think we need to just be constantly reminded of the fact that Nathaniel Bacon may not be a true patriot in the eyes of um, those from years past whom believe that he was a true patriot, but based upon what we've learned about him in this series, he really wasn't a true patriot. He was the exact opposite of a true patriot. He was a true rebel without a clear purpose. Or, I mean, yes, he may have thought he had a clear purpose, but to me, he doesn't have a clear purpose. So, one historical account finding from 1804, 1804, folks, who's president of the United States in 1804? Thomas Jefferson. So we're looking at just a little over 125 years after this incident ha happened that one historical account finding from 1804 had portrayed Nathaniel Bacon as a patriot, given that he and his band of followers rose up against a royal governor. Okay, yeah, you can rise up against someone, but does that make you and your um, band of followers true ardent patriots? Not necessarily. People often associate 1776 as the year in which America's founding fathers ousted their monarch, a.k.a. King George III. But the year 1776, rather, was more of a... It was more of a constructive approach, or a, I should say a modified approach, behind removing an irrelevant governmental structure and replacing the old with something relevant where anarchy could be greatly minimized. So the Declaration of Independence is not about formulating a new uh, system of government, but it's, yes, it's the document that, um, that brought all of those in attendance in Philadelphia to come together. And I'll talk more about this here later on, but for, but for right now, we should keep in mind that the declaration that, that when the declaration of independence was being written and it was finally submitted to the greater body of the continental Congress, that this, at that moment in time, that's when it became more of a, a unified approach where, Every other measure that had been attempted beforehand had now come up short, 
and a new course has to be altered. But the bottom line is that, yes, we are, okay, in 1776, we are renouncing our allegiance to the crown, but we also are willing to come up with a uh, makeshift government that will um, be uh, our governing body as we are now eventually, as we are now going into war with England. I mean, we already have fought um, Lexington and Concord and uh, Bunker Hill in Massachusetts, but now that we have officially, because remember during the time that those battles took place, we had not declared our, our we had not fully separated from England. But now, um, a year later, July 1776, 13 months after Bunker Hill, we are now in a different situation. There is no going back. So the, we have to keep in mind that, yes, one can say all they want that uh, Nathaniel Bacon and his followers, yes, they rose up against a royal governor. Yes, they may have done something that was radical, just like what would unfold 100 years later. But to me, I just find, um, I find a lot of differences between the two. Uh, many people in America saw Bacon's rebellion as a revolt against tyranny. However, let's keep in mind, folks, that when one revolts against tyranny, that means that they don't want to be associated with the government that, that's going to um, embody the same ideals that um, tyranny, harsh rule, um, portrays, or I should say represent. For Nathaniel Bacon and his uh, band of rebel followers, the whatever opposition they had, it was not towards um, the monarch in England, being Charles II. The opposition was against the issues from within the existing government, under the uh, leadership of Governor William Berkeley. But we do need to keep in mind that for generations, uh, past generations, including that of my parents, because based upon what I've told my dad about this uh, book, he told me, he said, Kirk, based upon what you've shared in the podcasts and the summaries you've provided, when I was growing up as a child, we didn't learn this stuff. We, did, we didn't know anything um, that even came close to what uh, author James D. Rice has uh, written about based upon his findings um, in this uh, study. So, as my, fa as my father said, you know, Kirk, all we learned about were just um, brief uh, snippets in a textbook, one or two paragraphs about this event, and that was pretty much it. We were just always led to believe that it was uh, quashed after a day's time and everybody went back to uh, living a normal life. Nope. So this, this uh, what do you call it, side of the story being that of, um, of, of the fact that uh, we've been misled to believe that Bacon's rebellion, we thought for years, was a revolt against tyranny, but it's not. The tyranny opposition, the opposition of tyranny was not towards Charles II, but it was pertained to all issues from within the existing government under the leadership of uh, Governor Berkeley. So, yes, this was a side that didn't get exposed until years later after the 1950s. Bacon might have come across to generations before as one whom represented justice. But, in fact, this was the exact opposite. Nathaniel Bacon didn't want a better government, but rather an institution that catered to a few and left many out of the equation. Well, 
if he wants an institution that's catering to a few, it's only going to be those whom are within his inner circle, those who share the same beliefs as he does. And what were some of those beliefs? Well, they believed that the current administration was favoring um, the Indians over the indentured servants and men like Bacon, whom were a part of the inner circle, because Governor Berkeley had, you know, made a promise that, you know, indentured servants would get 100 acres of land after X number of years of hard work. Well, this will get mentioned again more than once, but remember that uh, treaty from 1646. Governor Berkeley had to come up with a plan to prevent a third Anglo-Indian um, war. And yes, you can't blame the guy for trying to do everything there was to prevent a few, another Anglo-Indian war, but he also had to renege on a commitment. And yes, as we'll learn even in the epilogue, that there are those whom benefit, and then there are those whom don't benefit from, um, from such things as general legislation to treaties. So, in in this, with the phrase being uh, many were left out of the equation, the many, we can say, referred to those whom did not participate in the government, those whom had no um, vast tracts of land, those whom were, in a sense, not a part of the gentry, but at the same time, we have those who are a part of the gentry and high up in the um, not only in the Council of State, but in the House of Burgesses. So we have to be reminded of the fact that just because many are left out of the equation of a, a solution or a part of a, a greater cause, it doesn't always mean that they are confined to the lower ranks of society. Was Bacon's rebellion the opposite of all things viewed or portrayed as representing fundamental democratic government? Yes, for starters, Bacon and his rebel forces were against everything Governor Berkeley had implemented into law, most notably the treaty from 1646, which significantly improved relations with Indians by means of giving them land that had been originally promised to the indentured servants. And as we know, this treaty was meant to avoid another war between English settlers and natives. Well, as for Nathaniel Bacon, what would his Virginia have had? Well, his Virginia would have had no room for diversity tolerance, including diversity relations via alliances, alliances with Indians. Bacon's movement, to me, was one that personified glorification and pleasing Charles II in his interests. And what were Charles II's interests? Well, is it fair to say that his primary interest had to do with secretly removing Governor Berkeley and his followers, whom in the eyes of Nathaniel Bacon and his uh, band of uh, rebel followers, they saw Governor Berkeley and his followers as the real traitors, the culprits, meaning that they had um, instead favored the Indians and in and in, in ensuring that Indian relations remained intact, but yet, but yet were not interested in looking after the uh, affairs of uh, of those English settlers along the frontier, as well as uh, others whom lived on the frontier who were of uh, lower uh, tier status in terms of uh, in terms of where their land stand land 
um, ownership standings uh, stood in the greater um, hierarchy. Did Wilcombe Washburn write a book about Bacon's Rebellion? Yes. In 1957, he wrote the following. It's the title as follows. The Governor and the Rebel, A History of Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia. Author Wilcombe Washburn was against the notion of Nathaniel Bacon being a democratic reformer. In the eyes of Wilcombe Washburn, Bacon and his followers took their frustrations out against Governor Berkeley. And he's 100% right on that. Given that the governor himself refused to approve the annihilation and removal of innocent civilians. And when I think of innocent civilians here, I think of uh, the native peoples. Including those Englishmen from within the Council of State, as well as from the House of Burgesses who stood behind the governor's policies, including uh, relations with Indians who were um, a part of the 1646 treaty. To me, that's, uh, that's important. And to think that when he wrote this book in 1957, being the 350th anniversary of Jamestown's um, founding, that he had enough uh, of a notion, or he had enough... Um, information based upon his findings to be led to believe that Nathaniel Bacon was no savior, that Nathaniel Bacon was not interested in reforming the existing government from within. If Nathaniel Bacon had it his way, he might as well have been a dictator, or his government would have been that of an aristocracy where power is placed in the hands of the few. Now, uh, Virginia uh, frontier, and of course, in 1676, um, we have to remember uh, that Virginia's frontier is not not confined to, say, like the Shenandoah Valley or um, into southwest Virginia. But even in 1676, uh, Virginia's frontier would have fallen into uh, such places as Henrico County, which is not far from uh, where I live. But Vir the Virginia frontier, a.k.a. present-day Henrico County, in 1676, around the time of Bacon's Rebellion, comprised of both rich and poor. Okay, rich and poor. So who's living in Henrico County and he's a rich man? Nathaniel Bacon. He's not the only rich man that's living there, but given the fact that he lives there, he can um, draw a lot of attention, not only to those who are just as rich as he is, but he could also draw attention to those whom are poor and don't have a voice in the government, but yet they are so compelled and inspired by what Nathaniel Bacon uh, stands for that they will do just about anything to follow in his uh, footsteps and carry on his mission. So the Virginia frontier, being present-day Henrico County, yes, is comprised of both rich and poor, whom became united behind Nathaniel Bacon, given in their eyes they had all been excluded shut out to where their needs were not met. They felt inferior. And who can be best seen as public enemy number one? Governor Berkeley. It doesn't take much, folks, for people to be persuaded into believing something that they think is right. And in the end, 
it turns out to be something so wrong that it does have um, major long-term ramifications. Is it fair to compare Nathaniel Bacon with American revolutionary statesmen like George Washington to Thomas Jefferson? Absolutely not. Nathaniel Bacon wasn't looking for separation from king and country, but instead pursued removing an elective an elected official from office in a non-democratic matter with support by King Charles II. What should this be, folks? What do we see this as? If Nathaniel Bacon got support by King Charles II from the inside, to me this would be an act of a conspiracy. Remember, folks, conspiracy is where more than two people, two or more people, commit an overact to either remove someone illegally, remove someone um, from a high office position by means of violence, by means of, um, by, what do you call it, what, by non-election purposes. Nathaniel Bacon never once made any attempts to uh, seek reconciliation or let alone apologize or I should say apologize profusely to Governor Berkeley, although he did uh, recite um, some biblical lines that allowed him to retain his seat on the Council of State, as well as holding his uh, House of Burgess um, seat. But even that alone, to me, is not enough in terms of making um, true long-term uh, reconciliation. You know, Governor Berkeley, how do I say this? Nathaniel Bacon, in a sense, is the equivalent to a crab in a barrel. You know, whenever I think of someone who's a crab in a barrel, that person is always jealous of someone else's happiness. They're jealous of, of someone else's successes. They're jealous of the fact that so many other people around them have done well and yet that individual remains unhappy. And of course, it could be for all kinds of reasons. But to me, Nathaniel Bacon is a crab in a barrel. He's constantly finding fault with those whom were loyal to the governor, including supporting relations with Indians from a large alliance or a trade network based upon what had happened in 1646 with the treaty. I think it's fair to say that had Nathaniel Bacon obeyed Governor Berkeley's policies, there would have been no burning of Jamestown. But if it weren't Bacon's rebellion, there certainly would have been another dissident who would have come along and would have catered to a large enough mass of, um, of those whom displayed dissatisfaction towards the government. The same kind of mission would have um, emerged based upon how it all unraveled under Bacon's leadership. So, therefore, we can always be led to believe that, well, had Nathaniel Bacon obeyed Governor Berkeley's policies, that uh, a rebellion never would have taken place. Wishful thinking. There's always somebody else who would have uh, found fault and would have um, decided to take it upon themselves to to take matters into their own hands. 
A majority of America's founding forefathers, from George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, uh, John Dickinson, Benjamin Franklin, just to name a few, they had hoped for and yet supported uh, what was known as the Olive Branch Petition in 1776. This, um, the Olive Branch Petition was another uh, term for extending the tree branch as far as possible towards the mother country with the intent on resolving all existing unresolved issues between the crown and her subjects, a.k.a. 13 colonies, with, with the intent on avoiding the worst-case scenario. And what would have been the worst-case scenario that, that just prior to July 4th that many of our forefathers were hoping to avoid? They were hoping to avoid having to, to um, declare an official separation from England. This olive branch uh, was issued months before July of 1776, of course, you have to remember, it's 3,000 miles across the ocean, so we're not going to get an instant response right away. But obviously, it upset King George III to the point where he didn't even bother responding to the message. And so, therefore, no olive um, tree branch reply was sent back saying, yes, we will be more than happy to make amends, and let's talk this thing out so that there is no official separation. Now, it didn't happen that way. So... Yeah, to, to sum it up here, just a few weeks before the start of July 1776, did it finally it, it finally did materialize to where those in attendance at State Assembly Hall, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, came to the full inevitable realization that reconciliation with the mother country, being England, was no longer salvageable. A new course had to be chartered, or had to be charted rather, I should say, pardon me, and that new course, folks, was the Declaration of Independence. The, De the Declaration of Independence. The, C the famous Committee of Five, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Roger Sherman, Robert Livingston. Of course, we all would like to think Thomas Jefferson got it right on the first try, um, based upon listing the, the, the grievances and so forth. The man had to go undergo about 87 revisions with the document. John Adams and Benjamin Franklin um, steadfastly uh, went about proofreading it based upon the uh, changes that Jefferson was forced to make. The Declaration of Independence would be the focal document that listed all justifications for why separation was necessary, including the means of disbanding one government and forming another, where a, nation, where a nation and her people remained afloat. So, in other words, the Declaration of Independence. Yes, it was. It's a dec, it's a document that lists multiple grievances against the crown, but yet it's also a document that gives hope to a nation that has tried above and beyond to make amends with her um, ruler, but yet her ruler didn't want to do the exact opposite. So this Declaration of Independence was written as a means of making our justification for separation from England all the more, um, all the more necessary, all the more uh, assertful, assertive, 
you know, the olive branch petition just was no longer meant to be. So why send another petition 3,000 miles across the ocean if you didn't get a response the first time? And yes, uh, our forefathers now want separation. They know it's the only way to go now. But at the same time, if, if they're going to disband one government, being that of a tyrannical style of government, they've got to make sure that, they, that whatever comes about in the future will be the exact opposite, but it will. It, but they also want that government to make sure that that the nation and the people whom live under the na- under that nation will remain afloat, meaning that whatever government were to to take the place of the of the tyrannical style of government governing will be able to remain a permanent fixture, not just for the present generation, but for future generations. So isn't it fair to say that Nathaniel Bacon, all he wanted was a rebellion, but he didn't really seem to care what the um, the after effects would have uh, brought about. No, he didn't care. All he cared about was himself and, and perhaps... Uh, an anarchy-style government, perhaps a government that would only cater to his interests and those who uh, shared his um, ideologies. Were multiple dilemmas present at the heart of Bacon's rebellion? Yes. The most present of dilemmas centered upon existing conflicts between colonists, English settlers, and the Indians or Indian peoples. For the uh, colonists, or I should say for the English settlers, they sought to modify tensions amongst the people. Of course, who are the people at this time? The planter aristocracy class. Or maybe to, to modify it, the planter class. Their concern, however, is that they don't want to break apart anything that's um, social or political in terms of social and political structure given the fact that that the existing social and political structures, their statuses are hanging by a thread. You know, we've just been through a rebellion. We've gotten government restored, but yet the rebellion itself, it's still there. I mean, the remnants of it are still there. The scars are there. And then you've got the Indians and the Indian nations. Their dilemma centered upon surviving current and future onslaughts of English planters and slave traders. Think about this. English planters and slave traders whose intentions are to one day take over the territories that have been in the hands of um, various Indian tribes whose ancestral lands probably date back, you know, for all we know, maybe close to a thousand years, depending on uh, where they... um, depending on where they're living in eastern North America. For these Indian nations, it's one thing to be concerned about the um, current and future status of uh, onslaughts or waves of English planters and slave traders coming in to your territory. But if a war were to break out, where do you stand in terms of alliances? and especially if you have an outstanding trading alliance that still is intact. 
If you go to war, you run the risk of losing an alliance, a trading alliance. Or even worse, you run the risk of facing total annihilation. So for the Indians, you know, yes, they've been in wars. Yes, they have been on the side of some European peoples, but it's never been a match made in heaven. All they've seen is temporary relations. They've seen relations come and go, but they know that that it, that in the end, when it's all said and done with, what are the Europeans trying to do? They're trying to find ways to acquire land, even if it's doing so illegally. Although the rebel and the governor died between late 1676 and into mid-1777, the ordeal itself didn't go away overnight. Primary conflicts pertaining to Bacon's rebellion would take many years in settling. Like, for example, uh, eastern North America, most notably in the American uh, Southeast. Of course, when I think of the American Southeast, I think of at this time in the late 17th century, we've got the Carolinas, uh, Georgia, present-day Florida, perhaps, um, perhaps uh, Alabama as well, and even into what we now know as Mississippi. A huge swath, uh, Tennessee, I mean, we, we have a huge swath of land here that we're talking about in the American Southeast. But in the late 17th century, there was a huge expansion of the European economy that made its way into the Indian territory in the uh, present-day American Southeast. And yes, there were significant uh, trading, um, trading networks on both sides. And it did flourish. Well, hey, you always want trade to flourish, even with someone on the opposite side who you may not always see everything eye to eye on, but peaceful relations can only last but for so long. However, but when you get materials like guns, this is where relations can become, they can go from being great to really bad. You know, prior to European arrival in the New World, the Indians had never seen rifles or muskets, revolvers, pistols. All of these were new. Because think about it, what are Indians using to hunt food with? Uh, bows and arrows, especially if it's white-tailed deer, a black bear. Any uh, wild game is going to be require the use of a bow and arrow. So when they get their hands on a rifle or a musket it's going to definitely take the place of a bow and arrow and it's um it's it's going to be probably a little bit more convenient for them but providing guns to the indians it wasn't so much for security purposes it was a means for for larger um tribes who had already um established themselves most notably like the cherokees for example the Europeans would uh, basically ask the Cherokees, for example, to go in and um, take out less powerful tribes. Not just to take out less powerful tribes, but as a means of removing them from the existing territories. And those whom were not taken out were captured and given to uh, the Europeans, and the Europeans would sell those um tribal members of lower tier um, Indian ranks into slavery. 
it's sad that that happened, but but that's how, sadly, in that time, how power was acquired, even if it meant displacing some groups of uh, Indian tribes that were not on the same status level as others, like uh, Cherokees and uh, Okanichis, for example. Now, eliminating lower-tier tribes also would have meant greater strengthening in connecting Virginia tribes like the Okanichis with the Carolina tribes of the Tuscaroras, the Cherokees, and the Yamasees in times of uncertainty. And it should be uh, worth mentioning that the Tuscaroras would eventually go north by 1722 and join um, the Iroquois Nation or the... Um, or, or the uh, the League of Five. Um, so in other words, the uh, Tuscarora would join the uh, Seneca, the Cayuga, the Canandaigua, the Oneida. Uh, they would uh, join that uh, those those uh, bands of uh, Indian nations in the north, and what we now know is uh, the Mohawk. That's the another tribe, uh, in what we now know is New York State. And the Yamases, uh, just in case you all have never heard of the Yamases, they uh, lived in what we now know as uh, in uh, South Carolina. Uh, the Yamase uh, Nation did live in what we now know as in uh, part of uh, Hilton Head Island. Uh, the Yamases uh, were in South Carolina up until uh, about 1715 when they were uh, pretty much removed by means of war, violence, and were forced to relocate to uh, present-day Florida. So trade, we could say that trade is, has always been instrumental in helping uh, Europeans and Indians um, stay connected in terms of, of alliances. But even in times of peace came unwarranted contact. In other words, contact that had not been set up, contact that had not been called for ahead of time. Unwarranted contact had consequences. How about disease? I talked about disease in the last podcast. Well, what did disease do even in, in non-times of war when unwarranted contact itself came about? Disease eliminated Indian nations. Remember, Indians don't really have a whole lot of resistance to smallpox, measles, dysentery. So once they came in contact with it, it uh, pretty much decimated their um, populations to where they could never fully recover. Remember, Europeans can come over to the New World and they can repopulate in droves. That's what happened at Jamestown. But Indians can't, unfortunately, are not able to repopulate, even with alliances. They, they can't. Once they're gone, they're gone. So with the onspread of disease based upon unwarranted contact, Indian nations and Indian nations are being eliminated, and their ability to defend ancest ancestral lands, um, their ability uh, declines drastically. Disease alone led to one people's surrender, and another's conquest. In other words, the Indians never really had a chance to de to defend themselves when being subjected and coming into contact with uh, European diseases. And because they weren't able to defend themselves, it was an easy slam dunk for Europeans who finally made their way onto land that was not theirs 
but now has become theirs through means of um, unwarranted contact. Prior to 1674, the year of Nathaniel Bacon's entry into Virginia, the Virginia colony under Governor William Berkeley had gone from near collapse to unprecedented levels of prosperity where English settlers, including all Indians covered under the 1646 peace treaty, learned to coexist with one another without, without resorting to extremes. How about extremes like war, warfare? While no government is ever 100% immune from internal strife or let alone opposition to existing policies that favor one group of people over another, it never takes much spark to ignite unhappiness, especially involving government leaders, or I should say personnel, within an elite inner circle. Nathaniel Bacon and his band of rebels had their rights to express disapproval, but taking matters into one's own hands like Bacon himself supported placed Virginia Colony on high alert. No matter how tough Governor Berkeley was towards Bacon, Bacon and the rebel followers ultimately destroyed Virginia Colony's or ultimately destroyed the Virginia Colony's last best hope. And what was that last best hope? It had to do with preserving modified relations between English settlers loyal to to Governor Berkeley, including their direct ties to the Indian nations under the 1646 Peace Treaty. Being unhappy about policies is one thing, but to overthrow and burn the government like Bacon's band of rebel forces partook in erased 30 years of widespread, of widespread prosperity that never 100% recovered. Overthrowing a leader doesn't always unite a nation, or in this case a colony from 17th century days, because if no plans are outlined for a new government, then how does government improve going forward? Nathaniel, ba Nathaniel Bacon might have led a rebellion, but his became one that forever changed Virginia's relations with Indians to where alliances eventually became a thing of the past. In tolerating improper government actions, and what I think of an improper government action, how about a conspiracy, or conspiracies, became the new norm. Because remember, folks, Governor Berkeley wasn't removed by Nathaniel Bacon. King Charles II wanted Governor Berkeley out. And Nathaniel Bacon and men below him in his inner circle had conspired with King Charles II to see to it that their side of the story prevailed over William Berkeley, the governor. Governor William Berkeley sadly died. He died with a broken heart, knowing that the king had betrayed him, knowing that, and knowing that his side of the story was never told or shared. He died knowing that, um, that he put everything on the line, but yet never got the recognition he deserved. To think, you know, for 35 years, he had spent the majority of his time as governor of Virginia, resurrecting a colony that was on the brink of collapse, a colony that had seen unprecedented growth, prosperity. Now all of it's, it was gone, all because of a rush to judgment, but a deliberate rush to judgment. Acts of conspiracy had taken place. So conspiracies are nothing new, folks. They've been around since the beginning of time. 
But I do think it's fair to say that even with the enhanced technologies that we have today, people are more prone to believing just about anything that uh, comes out of someone's mouth in a matter of a few short sentences. Uh, it doesn't take much to just put whatever you want out there online and people will believe it. It might be fair to say that even in 1676 that uh, King Charles II didn't uh, check all of his facts. But then again, he didn't want to check all of his facts. He pretty much um, felt that there needed to be a change in the government. But he did so in a non-democratic way by siding with uh, Nathaniel Bacon and his band of followers and that, hey, it was okay to just remove the current governor illegally, even if it meant overthrowing the government and burning the capital on fire or setting it on, on fire. Well, that does it for this um, podcast segment, and uh, it, like I said, it's been a great one. I would probably have to say it was probably the most uh, challenging of ones that I've done, but uh, I could probably say somewhere else down the road that uh, I'll probably come across one that might be perhaps a little bit more challenging than, than this one. Um, for those of you who would like to read more about Tales from a Revolution, I strongly recommend doing so. It is a, it's a very good read. Um, one thing I will say is that... Uh, while I may not be a, uh, while I may not be an author, my primary purpose in sharing with you all these uh, stories is that my purpose is to tell you all the most accurate story I can present to you all, regardless of uh, book series topics we are doing, and based upon how I go about telling the story is the best I can come up with. But at the same time, I want to make sure that all of you walk away knowing that you've gained uh, relevant information and are willing to go about sharing it with those whom are just as passionate about uh, history as the rest of you all are. So thank you again uh, for your time, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon, and we will um, continue to progress forward in in a new uh, upcoming series and wherever we go based upon where the time machine takes us, it will be worth the while and learning uh, something that's uh, relevant, something that uh, perhaps we don't maybe know a whole lot about, but are willing to go the extra mile in taking that step towards something big. Thank you for your time and wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe. <music>